2: Welcome to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. For almost two decades, the IBM Center for the Business of Government has sought to connect research to practice, engaging authors and academics who, in their research and studies, contribute in some form or fashion to changing the way government does business. Today, governments are facing very serious, seemingly intractable public management issues that go to the core of effective governance and leadership, testing the very form, structure, and capacity required to meet these problems head on. These types of challenges run the gamut. Many are difficult to anticipate and don't follow orderly or linear processes. These so-called wicked problems tend to have innumerable causes and are hard to define, making their mitigation resistant to predetermined solutions or traditional problem-solving approaches. On some level, design thinking, a problem-solving approach with a unique set of qualities, it is human-centered, possibility-driven, option-focused, and iterative, may be better suited for tackling such issues. What is design thinking? How is design thinking being used to tackle public management challenges? Today, we'll explore these questions and so much more with Professor Jean Litka of the University of Virginia's Darden School. And co author of Design Thinking for the Greater Good Innovations in the Social Sector. Welcome to the show, Gene. It's great to have you.
0: It's wonderful to be here, Michael.
2: So, Gene, what is design thinking?
0: Well, as I see it, Michael, design thinking is really just a problem solving methodology, which on its own is no better or worse than many of the other methodologies we've already got in our toolkit. It's just different. And I think it's that difference that is what is drawing all of the attention to design thinking today. It's different in ways that make it well-suited to circumstances that are complex and uncertain. And it's also very well-suited to solving particularly human-oriented problems. So as I think of what are the key characteristics that differentiate design thinking from some of the more traditional uh, decision-making approaches we would take, it's first of all that it is is human-centered. It starts by placing the human being and their needs, and their job to be done, as designers would call it, by placing that at the center of our problem solving process. We obviously have to factor in the organization's needs as well, but that comes later in a sequential process. So it's human centeredness that we begin with. It's also iterative in that we don't expect to get the answer right the first time. And so our initial solution or our initial portfolio of solutions, because in design thinking, we often want to begin with multiple solutions, um, are just places to begin a process of testing in which we expect to iterate our ideas and to work with them. And then finally, the the other thing that really attracts me about design thinking is that it is possibility driven. So often in organizations, when we try and plan new futures or we try and think about how we can innovate or make things different than they are today, we begin by factoring in all of the constraints that are present in our current environment. Now, we know that ultimately that's important. These constraints are real. But if we begin with constraints... They crowd out possibilities, and tomorrow ends up looking a lot like today. So what design thinking asks us to do is to begin our idea generation by asking what, if anything, were possible. And only after we've generated a portfolio of possibilities do we then factor in the constraints and begin to ask, yes, that's possible, but can we really accomplish that? So that, to me, is what sets design thinking apart, this emphasis on user-centeredness, this emphasis on being possibility-driven, and its emphasis on being iterative.
2: That's great. So, Jean, we live in a world of increasingly wicked problems. Uh, First, what makes a problem wicked? Why are wicked problems seemingly intractable? And how does design thinking work best for addressing these challenges?
0: Well, you know, wicked problems have been talked about Uh, especially in the public sector, really since the 1940s. And for me, wicked problems are where complexity meets uncertainty. Right? So so part of what makes Problems Wicked is how complex the stakeholder group is that we're working with. So often in the business world that I am originally from, um, we like to think we have it tough. But in fact, our stakeholders are, are, are a pretty straightforward set of people. We've got a set of shareholders. We've got a set of customers we're trying to serve and employees in a community. Right. And generally, we are able to work across those groups and find common ground upon which to work. Um, if we look at the public sector, for instance, and an issue like healthcare, care, um, extremely diverse set of stakeholders, a set of stakeholders who can't even agree on a common definition of what the problem is, much less what the solution ought to be. So, that complexity of stakeholders and the diversity of their opinions makes it very difficult to do uh, the kinds of things we like to do in decision-making, which is align a group of people around what we think is an optimal solution and then win their cooperation in implementing it. All of this is very difficult. Um, if we can't agree on a definition of the problem, it's much more difficult. To agree on a solution. And the uncertainty in the environment makes our ability to predict whether taking a given action will actually produce the outcome we want challenging as well. So we take this diversity of stakeholders, and then we take this kind of murky causality link and an ability to really predict with confidence whether pulling lever A will actually result in the outcome we want. And we have what designers would call a wicked problem. I think the reason why design thinking is especially well suited to wicked problems is because wicked problems tend to be social problems as much as they are data or analytical problems. That is, we have a group of people who have to come together I think of design thinking really as bringing a social technology that allows us to convene better conversations across a diverse stakeholder group.
2: Gene, the design thinking approach is composed of four questions and 15 steps. Before we delve into specific illustrations of its use, I would like to explore each question and the steps associated with those questions. Would you tell us more of the what-is-stage What are the key steps that roll up to this question?
0: Well, as we look at the design thinking process, um, and again, I think one of the positive things for people trying to work with design thinking methodologies is, is even though there are as many different sets of terminologies and descriptions of process as there are academics like myself or consultants writing about it and talking and teaching about it, essentially there's a lot of agreement about what the design thinking process looks like. It, it, it's a period of exploration and discovery about the needs of the people we're trying to serve, followed by a period of generating ideas, followed by a period of testing. Now, what we found working with non-designers is that structuring that higher level process of exploration, ideation, and testing is extremely important. Designers are raised to be extremely comfortable with ambiguity. Um, It's in their training. They're used to putting ideas out there, having them critiqued, changing, iterating, moving forward. People who aren't trained in design, uh, especially people who work in bureaucracies, for instance, like the university in which I work, um, we are not comfortable often with the level of ambiguity that we face as we try and attract uh, and attack these messy problems. And so in our work, at the University of Virginia, at the Darden School, working with non-designers, which spans the range from business people to government officials, to healthcare providers, to educators, across the board, our experience has been that they need structure and they need additional guidance and discipline across the process. And so the way we've dealt with that at Darden is we've generated these four big questions which we uh, ask people using design thinking to answer. And each of those questions has a series of particular activities or steps we ask people to do. So the first question is what is? And that is the discovery question. What is going on today? In some ways, paradoxically, the only data we've got to come up with an idea for a better future lives today. And it's only by immersing ourselves in the current reality of the situation of the people we're trying to serve that we can be data driven in generating ideas to improve their lives along the dimension that is our responsibility. So this what is stage ha- has a kind of a, a, pre-set, a preset of stages where we make sure first that we have a problem that's designed for design thinking. Design thinking isn't a, a one size catch all tool that does everything. Then we make sure we've scoped the problem broadly enough that we're not defining away interesting opportunities for innovation by our definition of the problem. Then we want to do some thinking about the stakeholders that we're working with and perhaps lay them out with a tool that designers call stakeholder mapping. Make sure we understand all of the different stakeholders involved, not just the ones we're designing a solution for, but the ones who have to partner with us to make that solution real. Once we've done that preliminary work, we're ready to move into the discovery phase by first doing some of the ethnographic research that is fundamental to design thinking. So tools like journey mapping, job to be done, personas, ethnographic interviewing and observation. These are all different tools that we can use that begin to let us get at a deeper level of insights into the needs of the people that we're trying to serve. Once we've done that, we're ready to turn those insights Into design criteria. And those design criteria are what allow us to move to the next question, what if.
2: Uh, Now armed with the criteria that any good solution should meet, uh, we are ready to talk about the second question, what if. Does this stage begin to generate ideas, and what are some of the key steps that help answer this question, what if?
0: Well, in some ways, the what if stage is uh, the most familiar to most of us, we've all done brainstorming, right? And that's what really what if begins with. However, it's a a very different kind of brainstorming that I think has some unique advantages to the usual, uh, tell me 20 different uses for this paperclip off the top of your head. We are now in design thinking going to do data-driven brainstorming, which means we're going to take the design criteria based on our research of the needs of the people that we want to serve, and we're going to use those to brainstorm. Right? What that does is it creates a set of ideas that are grounded not in what pops into the top of our minds or what we impose on the people we're serving as their needs. It grounds it in our observations about their actual needs. So we begin with a structured brainstorming technique, usually using a trigger question that maybe uses an analogy or something to get people to think a little bit more creatively. And then that brainstorm material, all those post-its that we're used to for brainstorming, is fed into a concept development process. And in concept development process, uh, we think of it as, as the way kids do when they're playing with Legos, right? First, we dump a whole pile of Legos on the floor, those are the ideas that come out of brainstorming. But those individual Legos are not very interesting. It's only when we begin to combine them in different ways and create you know, cool things like rocket ships and houses and spaceships and, and different things that they actually uh, begin to come up with interesting creative ideas. So in concept development, we take the raw material, for brainstorming, and we use it to form concepts. And we then lay out in detail who are the stakeholders that those concepts are meant to serve, what are the needs that they are meant to satisfy, and how will we begin to deliver a solution against those needs? So as we move into creating what we call napkin pitches, these summaries of our concepts, we are now getting ready to make the transition between idea generation in the what if and idea testing. Uh, our third question that we refer to as what wows.
2: Gene, now that we have a set of concepts, uh, we are ready to move into the first stage of testing them by asking the third question what wows? What can you tell us about this stage and what steps are associated? to explore this question.
0: In what wows, we're taking these possibilities we've developed, solely looking at, if anything were possible, what solutions would we provide for the stakeholders we're serving, and we're beginning to layer the reality of organizational constraints in on top of them. So, In addition to looking at an idea, now we're looking at, well, what are the capabilities that are needed to actually deliver that idea, and do we have those capabilities? Uh, Essentially, it's a process of assumption testing, where we're saying, under what conditions is this idea a good one? So, there's a set of conditions about the way in which the idea creates value for our stakeholders. We've already factored that into our explorations during what is, Now we're also saying, what are the ways in which this allows the organization to meet its mission? And what are the ways in which it taps into the existing capabilities the organization has? Or what are the the new capabilities we need to build or partners we need to find in order to actually bring this idea into reality? So in What Wow's, we're setting up the tests and we're setting it up first by explicitly surfacing assumptions around why the idea is a good one so that we can later test them. And then as a second stage of what wows, we are trying to make our concepts as vivid and tangible as possible. So this is where design thinking's emphasis on rapid prototyping comes in. We're creating storyboards. Maybe we're creating videos. We're creating tangible artifacts so that when we move into testing, we're not saying to the stakeholders we're testing it with, oh, here's an idea I've got, what do you think of it? We are actually walking them through an old storyboard or journey map of the new experiences we're creating for them. So, So we are armed with the assumptions we're ready to test and the prototypes that are going to help us test them more accurately we're then ready to move into our fourth and final question, which is what works, which is really concerned with conducting small, rapid learning experiments with real people.
2: So, we, we, Gene, we have a prototype in hand. Uh, we are ready to learn from the real world by asking the fourth question, what works? What tends to happen in this stage of the process? And again, what steps are involved in answering what works?
0: So again, there, is two phases. there are two phases that we generally think of uh, as part of the what works process. The first is something that we call co-creation. And these are one-on-one conversations with the people we're trying to serve, our target group, um, in which we bring them several concepts in the form of prototypes. And we We walk through those prototypes with them so that they can experience them in some depth and give us feedback at every step of the way. And again, the feedback is not the traditional focus group, do you like this or do you want this? Instead, we're walking through the experience with them and at each phase of the experience, soliciting their input on what works about that piece of it, what doesn't work, what they might do differently, what they prefer to see. that. But it's all in the confines of this one-on-one conversation. That is the first bit of feedback that allows us to then go back and revise our ideas. Once we've had enough of those conversations where we feel like our ideas are ready for real road testing, we then move into the stage of learning launch design, where we're literally trying to design some rapid experiments in the marketplace to see whether the ideas are actually generating the kind of benefits we hope they will.
2: So, Gene, from your research into the what you call social sector, what we refer to as the public sector, could you highlight some of the challenges to doing innovation in the public sector? And more importantly, how do these challenges differ? from those faced in the private sector?
0: As I've said before, Michael, um, I think oftentimes in business, we think we have tough jobs. And then I think those of us who work with people in the public sector come to appreciate how easy our job actually is by comparison. So for instance, an example I would use that we focus on in our book is the work of the US Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. The FDA sits at the nexus of a diverse group of stakeholders, not only external stakeholders, in this case, medical device manufacturers, uh, pharmaceutical companies, healthcare providers, patient advocacy groups, but also a network of other government agencies uh, that are, are chartered to also regulate different aspects. So when we look at how the FDA, under significant scrutiny and pressure, takes the interests of all of these different stakeholders into account, it's an extremely challenging situation. And, and often, again, because of the way a government has created rules and regulations to protect the interests of citizens, it is not necessarily always easy to do the kinds of research that we would do in business. And so, traditionally, uh, the state, uh, the uh, FDA has had to use these public meetings, public forums, in which the different stakeholders get up and state their opinion on any particular issue. They follow each other to the microphone. They do very little listening. Uh, these are advocacy opportunities, right, in which organizations assert whatever stakeholder group it is, assert what they believe to be the best way for the FDA to go. Well, the problem with that, of course, is that there's no alignment. And so we've got very polarized forces with no real way to bring them together. And in particular, if we look at the challenges of measurement in the public world, that adds to the complexity. And in business, we have this thing called profit. And even though profit in our view at Darden, is not the driver of of business action. Value creation is the driver and profit is what happens when you do a good job of value creation. Profit at least tells us if something's not working, right? Because long term, we're unable to sustain unprofitable activities in business. We go into the public sector and the different measures, if we look at the FDA, right? We've got the well-being of patients. We've got the financial health of providers and insurers. We've got the mandates of government around regulation and safety. We have these contrasting kinds of measurement systems that often make it equally difficult to align. So uh, we've often got also short tenure of leaders. I mean, oftentimes with each change of administration, we have new leadership in place. So all of these combine to make an extremely challenging situation. What the FDA has experimented with is this idea of using design thinking methodologies to convene groups of people, putting them in small groups that are deliberately Architected to have diversity of functions. So we've got different regulators represented in each small group, medical device manufacturers, pharmaceuticals, providers, healthcare advocates, all these people sitting at the same table in small groups and allowing them to define the problems as they see it. So this this is one great opportunity. When we impose a definition of the problem on people, we often don't leave room for them to care a lot about the answer. So if we allow these groups to come together to identify problems, for instance, one of the things that has uh, come up in the FDA is oftentimes the problems are not primarily about regulation. Uh, In the respiratory protective device story we share in the book, uh, it turns out that the real problem with preparing America for epidemics by having respiratory devices available is not the regulation of those devices, it's the level of training in the field to use the device as well. That's a learning that came out of allowing these diverse groups to come together and to define what they saw as the challenge to emergency preparedness, rather than as the FDA imposing their view or their definition of the problem, which was we need regulations, help us make them. So I think that for me, that story kind of captures in a microcosm the challenges of doing the kind of work uh, people are doing in government.
2: Gene, your book illustrates two distinct archetypes, George and Jeffrey. They represent two opposite sides of a continuum. Would you explain the characteristics of each of these archetypes and how can they help each other?
0: Well, you know, George and Jeffrey came out of uh, some research we did about 10 years ago uh, on organic growth leaders in business organizations. So, we wanted to understand what are the characteristics of leaders who are especially good at innovation and growth in large bureaucratic organizations. So, we studied people who'd managed to grow their businesses faster than their markets in some fairly slow growing markets. And what we found was that these managers had a set of characteristics that were quite different in terms of how they approached a decision than, uh, than most of the managers we dealt with at Darden. They were, first of all, they first of all had this deeply personal understanding of their customers and the people that they were trying to serve. They also uh, were believers in experimentation. uh, And they had, in particular, a very particular mindset that they approached innovation with. That is, they really saw, well, they saw not just innovation, but life as a journey of learning. And so they were willing to take some risks uh, and accept the chance that they might fail in order to learn and improve and move forward. As as we kind of contrasted this mindset and these activities of Jeffrey, as we called our manager, who was the successful growth leader, we came to realize that most of the people that we worked with, uh, uh, who we captured in the archetype of George, were quite different. George has what psychological... Uh, scholars, would call a fixed mindset. So here in particular, we're referencing the work of Carol Dweck and her work on mindsets. Whereas Jeffrey somehow picked up early in his life that life was a journey of learning, so making mistakes was okay, George instead picked up this notion that life is a test and the objective is never to get the answer wrong. For George, being right became the same as being smart. And I mean, that sounds kind of trite. Being right is the same as being smart because we all want to be smart. But for George, being smart means knowing the right answer. As a result of that mindset, George makes all kinds of logical choices that protect him or her from being wrong. All of those logical choices work pretty well in a predictable world. But as soon as we try and create something new, those choices really get in the way. And so for us talking about George and Jeff was a way to help people understand that the way, their way of looking at the world, the way that had gotten them the success they were currently experiencing was also the thing that was getting in the way of them being more successful innovators. The good thing about mindsets is If we're unconscious of them, they in many ways control our behavior. But like our personality type on Myers-Briggs, once we have awareness of them, we are able to make different choices. So a lot of the work we've been doing in the educational side at Darden is to try and help managers develop an awareness of their own mindsets and to appreciate that to succeed at innovation, they had to make different choices that looked more like the choices that Jeffrey made quite intuitively. Our way of helping George make different choices was to teach design thinking, because it turns out that the behaviors that Jeffrey did without thinking that were just natural to him were activities that design thinking had tools and processes to help us learn and succeed at. So for us, design thinking became a way of helping George to behave in some different ways, but manage the risk of those new behaviors by giving him or her the confidence that comes with having a set of processes and tools.
2: How is design thinking being used in the public sector? We will explore this question and so much more when the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors, returns. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center Special Report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. What are the U.S. Army Reserve strategic priorities?
1: What are the essential components of force readiness? How does the U.S. Army Reserve support civil authorities? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Lieutenant General Charles Lucky, Chief of Army Reserve and Commanding General, U.S. Army Reserve Command. That's next week on the Business of Government Hour. The Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 on Federal News Radio, 1500
2: a.m. Welcome back to the special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors, exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Professor Gene Litka of the University of Virginia's Darden School and co-author of Design Thinking for the Greater Good, Innovation in the Social Sector. Gene, I'd like to explore some of the case studies you put in your book, and in particular, uh, igniting creative confidence at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services HHS, would you tell us more about HHS's Ignite Accelerator program and its use of design thinking? How does the White River Hospital story illustrate that use?
0: Yes, whenever I uh, talk to anyone who's convinced that there isn't interesting innovation work going on in Washington, D.C., I tell them the story of Ignite at Health and Human Services because I think it's, um, it's a story that business organizations need to listen to and learn from. So the Ignite Accelerator uh, at HHS is really about reaching out to HHS employees around the country, wherever they may be, and giving them the opportunity to step forward with ideas to improve services to citizens. The story we profile in depth in the book is a story of a young woman who's a quality control officer at an Apache Indian reservation in White River, Arizona, where hospital wait times often reach as much as six hours in length. And again, um, this isn't a function of lack of commitment, it's a function of the fact that that the hospital is really the only healthcare provider within a large geographic area. So even if I have a relatively mundane health issue like having a prescription refilled, I have to come into the hospital and be seen through the emergency room. Well, what was happening is uh, people were getting tired of waiting and they were going home and then coming back later, With much more serious problems than they would have had had they received treatment on their first visit. So, this idea of reducing wait times in the emergency room that this HHS employee saw would not only benefit the patients, obviously reducing their weights and getting them medical treatment earlier, but it would also help the organization solve a very expensive problem of people coming back sicker and, for instance, needing to be helicoptered out of the reservation to the nearest tertiary care hospital. So this young uh, officer had seen something uh, about a computer triage uh, method that was used at Johns Hopkins Medical Center in Baltimore. So she responded to this blanket email that went out from headquarters in D.C. and said, I have this idea and I'd like to see it through. It was selected and she was put into the Ignite Accelerator program with a team of other folks from White River, which gave them one thinking uh, uh, training in design thinking And lean. Two, it offered the mentors who would help them through the process and help them connect into HHS networks for information that they didn't have. It involved having supervisors support and, and give them time to devote towards this innovation. And most interestingly of all, it guaranteed that they would have an audience with a decision maker to present their idea to at the end of the process who would actually make a go no go decision. So in this case, uh, as they embarked on the design thinking process and talked about this process of gathering data on the people they were trying to serve, surfacing assumptions about the idea, what the team at White River quickly realized was that people using the emergency room to a great extent were Apache elders who would not be comfortable with technology. And so this idea of a kiosk, which works so well at Johns Hopkins, and urban environment, could in fact make things worse at White River. So they pivoted, in the jargon of the day, away from that to another solution, which they learned quickly through the HHS networks would not be allowable because it involved triage by a non-medical expert and pivoted to a third solution. That third solution is currently being implemented. Preliminary experiments suggest that it's capable of reducing the wait time by about half and is likely to save the hospital millions of dollars in additional medical costs. Now, we might say in some ways, well, isn't innovation around disruption and novelty? I mean, that idea doesn't sound very disruptive, and it certainly doesn't sound very novel. But if we define innovation as value creation, both for those patients in the waiting room and for the hospital as an organization, tremendous value was unleashed by that team at White River. Now, if we take 80,000 employees at HHS around the country, if even a small fraction of them step forward with opportunities like that, we're looking at a number that is very significant. And so that is one of the, I think, really motivates me about design thinking. It's kind of a way to democratize innovation, to reach out across an organization to people at every level and say, in your world, in the piece of the world you're responsible for, What are the opportunities you see to make things better for the people you serve? And Ignite at HHS, to me, is one of the great stories of opening up those lines of communication and inviting employees at the front line to share the opportunities they see.
2: Uh, So, Jean, as a follow-up, what lessons were learned from the study, and would you reflect on the process overall?
0: Well, I mean, I think one of the things that is really important in today's environment is to pay attention to the level of rigor and support people need to succeed at developing new skills, in this case, design thinking. What the White River team got was some pretty detailed training in these methodologies. So it wasn't a one-day hackathon where everyone showed up with post-it notes and had a great day generating ideas and then went back to their office. There was specific in-depth training provided, and then there was coaching and mentoring to help at every step of the way as the White River team went through the process. I think that's one of the kind of counterintuitive things that we've found in our research, we often think of creativity as something that happens when there's no structure and we have a bias against structuring processes with the idea that will drive innovative thinking out but we find just the opposite it is disciplined structured processes and providing good training and mentoring and coaching that is what allows these innovative ideas One, to be identified, but even more importantly, to be systematically tested and implemented. And so I think one of the lessons we take away from our research on design thinking and a concern that I have is that like any other new technique, it's possible to do a set of short term, feel good, superficial kinds of implementations that don't really equip people to embed these new ways of thinking and behaving in their day-to-day practices. And I think when we look at the success of Ignite, a good measure of the success is the careful structuring of training and ongoing support within the HHS administration that allows these frontline innovators to actually follow through on the ideas they see.
2: So, Jean, I'd like to discuss the scaling of design thinking. Um, how does the case study of Australia's Monash Medical Center illustrate the success of scaling design thinking? How did the medical center use design thinking? And what were some of the challenges it faced while using it?
0: Well, the, the, the story of the Monash Medical Center's use of design thinking starts very simply. One of their senior physicians came uh, to visit us in uh, at Darden in here in Virginia, and spent a week learning the design thinking process. He became very excited about the possibilities that he saw for involving providers in decisions around how to innovate and improve the services offered. So he went back to Melbourne and enrolled a group of other clinicians and staff in online coursework that we've developed here at Darden, which walks learners through the steps while they do a project in their own world that is of significance to them. What we're excited about in this methodology is this ability to scale cheaply and inexpensively. We know what it would cost to fly a whole group of clinicians from Australia to Charlottesville, Virginia, to do this work. Instead, one physician came and came back and led the development of these skills in a larger group. And so what's going on at Monash is uh, the last time we checked, upwards of 15 projects that really span the whole organization. From issues that are as close in as getting staff to wash their hands more frequently to big picture intractable issues like how do we reduce length of stay in an increasingly aging population population. Uh, in order to conserve resources and improve quality of life, to uh, the story we profile in most depth in the book is their uh, mental health walk-in clinic. How do we improve the ability of these patients to stay healthy longer and reduce the interval in between visits to the emergency room for things like drug overdoses and suicide attempts? So for me, Melbourne illustrates, again, like HHS, the power of the individual, and the ability to take these ideas back to organizations, invite a broader group of people into the process, and free them to look for opportunities in whatever part of the world they live in to make things better for the people we're trying to serve. Uh, Now, like anything else, we know that any new initiative is more successful when we have top-down support. Monash Medical Center, again, has struggled with changes in leadership and has often uh, had to operate much more as a grassroots level. But again, as their successes grow and the evidence of what they're producing grows, increasingly it's attracting more attention from senior leaders and getting the kind of top down support it needs. So, you know, these kinds of changes can come from the top down. Or they can come from the bottom up, as they have in Melbourne with the physician um, who took it upon himself to lead these efforts and kind of become an evangelist. And they meet somewhere in the middle uh, in order to make things work.
2: So, Gene, how has design thinking been used to bridge technology and the human experience? And I was wondering if you could perhaps give us an overview of the example in your book of the U.S. Transportation Security Administration, TSA, uh, how did it use design thinking? What benefits did it uh, achieve in using the design thinking to bridging technology and the human experience?
0: Well, I think we all have to admit, um, if there's a if if there's an organization in the federal government who is kind of most in the crosshairs of the public's indignation at any moment in time, it would probably be TSA, right? I mean, they have this huge and challenging mandate to protect the safety of our transportation system. And as individual travelers, we have a mandate to get where we're going as quickly as possible and with as little hassle as possible. And those tend to clash right in the middle. And I think it's a real tribute to TSA, the commitment they have made to try and build better relationships with the traveling public. And we often don't give them credit for that. But in in many ways, I mean, TSA has really been, for instance, a pioneer in social networking. Uh, We we all laugh in the book. There's an instance where their social networking website is rated just behind Beyonce's by Wired magazine, I think, or one of the popular magazines uh, for popularity. And I think it's because they have had the insight that making... The traveling experience safer is not just about more rigorously applying rules. It's about developing a better relationship with the traveling public so that they can be a partner in improving safety. So, uh, in one of the early studies done at TSA by IDEO, um, one of the insights was that recognizing travelers with malevolent intent was enhanced if we could keep innocent travelers calm, right? And of course, we've all been at checkpoints with very upset people for whatever reason. But this idea of deliberately having as a target, let's work on keeping the traveling public calm while we enforce these regulations really leads to a different way of design and a different attitude on the part, for instance, of TSA employees. So I think in some ways, this recognition that, you know, the creatures going through those scanning machines at the airport are not robots, they're human beings. And the more we understand their experience and their needs, the more we can successfully work together to create a safer transportation system. So I think that's been very important, not always evident to us, the traveling public, uh, but very much an ethos at TSA that has impressed me and has some advantages. So for instance, in one of the stories we tell uh, in the book, in which uh, the TSA is working with uh sapient uh, consulting firm to create a new website. Just as they're about to launch the new website, they change all of the regulations about the structure and the design of websites. And so in some ways, all of the work that that TSA and Sapien has done together to create this new website has to stop while they reassess these new guidelines. But because the design thinking process has focused on creating a set of design criteria to create a better experience for the traveling public, not just the design of a website, they're able to pivot and take that design criteria and use it immediately to create a new app. And I think that, again, is another example of the way in which the design thinking methodology can increase the flexibility of our innovation processes and allow us to pivot quickly as we go through these testing processes. We get some disconfirming data that this idea we're moving forward in will no longer work. We can quickly pivot using this exploratory research we've done to a new solution much more quickly than we have to than if we have to start all over because we've invested all of our energy in researching not stakeholder needs, but a particular solution to those needs.
2: What are some of the key tools and practices used in design thinking? We'll explore this question and so much more on our special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors Returns. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center Special Report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center Special Report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, A Conversation with Authors, exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness with Professor Gene Litka of the University of Virginia's Darden School and co-author of Design Thinking for the Greater Good, Innovation in the Social Sector. Gene, there are a lot of tools and practices that make up design thinking, and in this segment, I'd like to discuss some of those tools. Um, What is journey mapping, and how does it factor in to design thinking?
0: Journey mapping is, in my personal view, probably the single most useful tool to teach someone who's new who's new to design thinking. Um, in part because journey mapping is kind of just like a flow chart of someone's experience with emotion added. So when I create a journey map, I trace a given individual's experience from the very beginning to the end. So for instance, if we go back to TSA, we all know that um, we have somewhat of a tendency in organizations to focus in on just our part of the experience. So if I'm TSA, I focus in on the security part. But from the perspective of the traveler, I'm part of an end-to-end experience. That is, there's a reason why I'm traveling. There's a job to be done. It's not to spend time on an airplane, right? It's to get to a new destination and do something. So my experience doesn't really begin when I show up uh, to have my bags checked and scanned at TSA it really starts when I have a reason for business travel, right? And I travel to the airport and I check in with my airline and yeah, then I go through security, but then I go to my airline. And so what the journey mapping tool asks us to do is to pay attention to each step in the end to end experience and try and understand based on the emotional highs and lows of the person whose needs we're trying to meet. What are the emotional low points? And we begin to innovate by trying to deal with those emotional low points. So, for instance, we really recently used journey mapping with our own MBA population. If you take a group of faculty and you ask them to improve the experience of an MBA, they will immediately go to the classroom and usually begin to argue with with each other about the kind of curriculum revision that would improve their experience. But what we found when we actually mapped the student experience is that the biggest opportunity for improving the experience of students is often around helping them get jobs. And if we're not careful, we design the educational experience in ways that deliberately impede the ability of staff at the school who help students get jobs do their work right? Now, as faculty, we do that with good intentions. We're trying to protect the academic integrity of the curriculum, but the net result on the user or the stakeholder, in this case, the students, is that we make them jump through hurdles between professors and the career development staff. So, if we truly want to improve the student experience, the way to do it is to target the point of dissatisfaction in their journey, which right now, uh, which often can be the job search process, and to put our energy as faculty into building better collaborative relationships with the career services staff to help them do their job. Those are the kind of learnings that can come out of journey mapping and why I consider it one one of the most powerful tools in the design thinking arsenal.
2: Gene, you and your colleagues point out that the would-be innovators are armed with an outmoded toolkit premised on predictability and control optimized for solving tamed problems. Uh, What I want to get at is, what is the goal of your book?
0: Our goal um, in the book was to equip uh, practitioners in the social sector who want to make a difference with both a toolkit for doing that and an understanding of the context in which others are using the toolkit to make a difference. So as we think about the book, um, uh, our book, it really has three parts to it, right? Part one is what is design thinking and why is it useful? And, uh, you know, what is the story of George and Jeff? So how do we understand how we as individual leaders have adopted a set of ways of thinking and behaving that we're not even really conscious of that get in our way as we try and innovate. So in in part, part one is kind of the personal story because all change and innovation begins with us as individuals, right? We know it's very easy to tell other people to be different, But we have to be willing to be different ourselves in order to lead others on a new path. And so part one is really about, at a personal level, understanding design thinking, understanding the toolkit, and understanding the ways in which I need to change in order to enhance my ability to lead innovation in in my organization. Part two is the stories. One of the challenges, I think, for those wanting to use design thinking is a lot of the storytelling we do is at a very high abstract level, right? So so we have the stories of the great work that IDEO does for their clients, but they're not in-depth enough to really give us a sense of if we wanted to replicate that success, what would we do? So our goal in part two of the book was to tell in-depth stories where real people in real organizations, we're using design thinking to get something done that mattered to them. And you know, it, we have a, a quite a different set of organizations in there, and different leaders at different levels and with different backgrounds. But the common theme there is that they're all embracing this idea of this new toolkit and they're putting it into use in their organizations and we're able to see exactly what's happening and to whatever extent possible, try and get a sense of the outcomes they're producing. Uh, The third part of the book then uses just one example, an example of a gateway college Uh, uh, in California, which has used uh, the methodology that we use, which is the 15-step, four-question process that you referenced earlier, Michael, to walk through this problem of how to reduce the dropout rate of the at-risk teenagers in their school. And there, we're able to give a very, very detailed step-by-step story of the work that they've done at each stage with the idea there being, if we've in part one motivated leaders to make a difference and given them an understanding in general of what design thinking can do. If in part two, we've successfully given them detailed kind of blueprints of how it's being done at other organizations so that they can identify the opportunities in their world to use it. Then in part three, we've given them a hands-on methodology in detail about how to move through the process end to end. So that's really been our goal in the book is to accomplish all three of those objectives so that really anyone who's motivated and interesting can come away from the book ready to begin to try it out in their own world.
2: Uh, Gene, where do we go from here and what's next for design thinking?
0: I think right now, design thinking, as we understand it, is still being used primarily around improvements in uh, quality of services, uh, provided uh, improvements in the quality of the conversations people are ha- happening. One of the frontiers for that I'm personally interested in and that we've begun to work on is this idea of how design thinking can influence at the policy level. And there is some, uh, I think, extremely thoughtful work being done in places like DOD and in places like the, the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey that I, I just visited last week, in which people are taking the dying thinking methodology and they are applying it at the policy level. I think there's a tremendous amount of opportunity there to use these tools to really have a profound influence. And I'm excited about that area and continuing to work on it. The one other area is in measuring outcomes. Demonstrating results in rigorous ways is always a challenge in the innovation space. It's not a challenge that's unique to design thinking. Analyzing and specifying the outcomes of innovation processes is complicated. That's an area that we're also working on. Probably it's more the academic in me there. I think those working with design thinking have strong belief in its value and its efficacy, but It's going to be important for us to bring data to bear to demonstrate that that belief is true. And so uh, also part of what we're doing now is really trying to understand in detail the mechanisms through which design thinking is working and to try to calibrate those mechanisms in practice so that we can begin to build a more rigorous database around the kinds of outcomes that design thinking is capable of producing.
2: Gene, I want to thank you for joining me today.
0: Well, thank you. It's been my uh, pleasure to have part of the uh, to be part of your discussion, and I look forward to continuing it, Michael.
2: This has been a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with authors exploring ideas for improving government effectiveness, with Professor Gene Litka of the University of Virginia's Darden School, and co-author with Randy Salzman and Daisy Azer of Design Thinking for the Greater Good, Innovation in the Social Sector. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful an in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us.
1: This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. What are the U.S. Army Reserve's strategic priorities? What are the essential components of force readiness? How does the U.S. Army Reserve support civil authorities? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Lieutenant General Charles Lucky, Chief of Army Reserve and Commanding General, U.S. Army Reserve Command. That's next week on the Business of Government Hour. The Business of Government Hour, Monday at 11 on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.